If you weren't here with us last week, um, we started a series, a a three-part, a little mini-series, called I See Things Upside Down. We're walking through this Advent season. Advent simply means arrival or coming. We're talking about the fact that Jesus, our Savior, as we just sang, has come to this world, and all that's left for us is to sing hallelujah. And last week, if you were here, you remember my friend, Bojana. I talked about Bojana. She is one, she literally, if if you notice, um, she's reading her newspaper upside down. It's not because she's crazy. Um, It's because she literally sees the world that you and I see upside down. Everything in her life is upside down. And, and, but, you know, did you know that, that we actually all see things upside down? Um, a little, we're going to take a little brief detour into the nerdy word, world of science, so come with me. Um, when, when your eye, when you look at something, light um, enters your cornea, and it's actually refracted um, when it hits that lens, and so it's flipped upside down so that when it gets to the back of your eye, to the retina, you're seeing everything in this world flipped upside down. But the reason you're not actually seeing, like right now you're like, no, Justin, you look right side up to me. Thanks. Um, That image actually stays inverted until it reaches your brain. And then the visual cortex in your brain actually flips that image right side up again for you. Your brain decided, God decided to make your brain this way, so that instead of trying to coordinate your hands and feet in an upside down world, it would just actually flip the image for you. Um, Babies, it's believed, we can't prove it because they always decline interviews, um, but they actually see the world for the first few days of their lives, they actually see the world upside down until their brain has had a chance to flip it back upside, right side up for them. And that's why you'll see some kids catch on quicker than others. Um, Here we go, wait for it. Oh, 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 and down. (laughs) Poor girl. You want to see it one more time? All right. We, she maybe took, for some, some are slow learners, right? And that's fine. We still love her. All right, moving on. Um, there was actually study, a study done where participants would wear these glasses. And um, what it did was it actually inverted the images that they saw. And the fascinating thing about the study is over the course of a few days, their brains actually flipped the images for them. And they started to see the images right side up again in their brain. And then when they took the glasses back off, A few days later, after seeing things upside down again, the brain once again flipped it right back side up for them. Now you're like, now my brain feels like it's upside down. Um, But but the, the point here, why I bring all of this up, is that we as believers, we're born again into this new world. And and just like a baby, where it takes a few days for them to flip that image right side up, it takes for us some time. Um, for our brains, through, through the lens of faith, to begin to flip things upside down and see them the way that God sees them, not the way that we've seen them from the world's perspective. Last week, we saw that the first thing that we need to see upside down is our expectations in light of the prophecies that were made about the coming Savior. And you remember, we we reminded ourselves that what's wrong in this world, what's broken in this world, is our relationship to God. But when, as soon as Adam and Eve had sinned and declared their dependency from God, God immediately stepped in and, and, and gave us a rescue plan. 
And we walked through that last week, that in Genesis 3, he he said that there is going to be one coming, we call them the head crusher. He is going to crush the head of Satan, symbolizing his defeat of sin and death, deliverance for us so that we could be reconnected with our God in relationship. And then we saw in Genesis 12, specifically this deliverer is going to come through the line of Abraham, he's going to be of Jewish descent, and he is going to be one who blesses all families, that this deliverance is not just for the Jewish people, which is good if you're a Gentile like me, that all of us, every human being is going to be a part of this divine rescue plan. And then we saw in Isaiah 9 that he is going to become the eradicator of all injustice and oppression. We, we sang that in that beautiful song, that one day our Savior is going to right every wrong. Now clearly we look at our world today, that has not happened yet, but there is a day coming when everything will be made right. And what we saw, that head crusher that we now know is Jesus, and he's come, that that he was not the person that the Jews were expecting. They had an upside-down image of who Jesus would be. They were expecting somebody coming to be born in in a golden cradle, in, in in a palace with a silver spoon in his mouth, not born in some podunk town like Nazareth, with not a penny to his name. They were expecting him to come with a sword. Instead, he came and he took up a cross. And he came not first and foremost to defeat the enemies surrounding Israel geographically, but to defeat the enemy within their sin. And we reminded ourselves that, that how, how we live in a world with upside-down expectations, that you and I, we live in this lie that we think that we can beat sin, that we can be our own saviors and not place our hope in Jesus, and how that leads us to live silly temporary, meaningless lives apart from him. And to remind ourselves that what we're anticipating in this month of December is not January, or sorry, December 25th, where we receive presents, but that day when Jesus comes back, rights every wrong, and we're in his presence, called home to be his people. And the second thing I want to look at today is that, that we need to see upside down in regard to our expectations is how those prophecies were fulfilled and how those promises are fulfilled in, in our life today. Um, and so to do that, I want us to jump out of the Old Testament prophecies and we're going to go into the New Testament narrative, the famous passage, Luke 2. Um, Ian read for us the second portion that we're going to get to next week. Um, and this, that's the part that Linus reads in the uh, Christmas, Charlie Brown Christmas special. But here we want to start at the beginning of Luke 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus, you know the, word, the verse, he issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Do you know what I see here in these first two verses? History. Isn't that exciting? Some of you are like, no. You have PTSD flashbacks of history class. You're like, I hate history. Don't take me there. But what I want to point out here is the Bible, it doesn't read like myth. This is something that really happened. Like Caesar Augustus, he was a person. We have archaeological evidence that backs up that he lived in this time, that he did these things. We have history books that speak to him. It says this is the first census that was taken, not the second. This is not just some ideological pie-in-the-sky myth. This is real life. This is real history. And then verse 3, it says, Everyone went to their own town to register. And we know why they did that. So Joseph 
also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee, remember that's where he's from, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. The first thing I want us to do as we read that that passage that we know so well is just marvel for a moment at the truth that God uses all things for his purpose. He uses all people, even the government, for his purposes and his ends. You see, Joseph, he lived in Nazareth. He did't live in Bethlehem. But there's a, there's a problem with that, okay? Because in Micah 5.2, there, there was this prophecy that was made. And it says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. The prophecy is that Jesus is going to come out of Bethlehem, not Nazareth. But Joseph lives in Nazareth. But the beautiful thing here is God is not sitting there going, oh my goodness, how in the world am I going to get Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem? Like, what am I going to do? Do I send him a dream, a vision? Like, do I slip him a 20? I just flick him? Like, you know, just kind of throw him? I'm God. I can do whatever I want. Like, how am I going to get him from point A? Oh, phew! Oh man, Caesar issued a decree to take a census and he's going to go over there. Whew! Thanks, Caesar. You hooked me up, man. I was, I was going to be up a creek without you, Right? This isn't Caesar's idea. This isn't Caesar's doing. In fact, we know this government wants no part of an uprising of a Jewish savior. This isn't Mary's idea. This isn't Joseph's idea. If this baby was just a few weeks premature, this whole prophecy goes to pot. In fact, there's some that say this this census had been given five years in advance and Joseph and Mary are kind of doing this in the 11th hour. I guess this is the one due date we can actually bank on, right? But we know that Joseph went to Bethlehem because there's this census being taken where you had to go to your ancestral town every 14 years um, for military and tax purposes so we know who we can enlist and who we can get money from. Um, They'd have to go to their hometown. Um, His ancestor was David, so he had to go to Bethlehem. And it's almost as if this whole thing is being divinely orchestrated. And here's the, here's the weightiness behind this idea. Nobody gets to decide whether or not their life will glorify God. No one. Not Caesar, not Mary, not Joseph, not you or I. The powerful, the weak, the rich and the poor. Everyone's life will glorify God, ultimately. But... See, Romans 11 says it this way. For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. God is going to receive the glory in all things. Now, we can do this in one of two ways. We can glorify God as Savior by placing our faith in Jesus, by being saved by the blood of the Lamb and becoming trophies of his grace. Or... We can glorify him by being rightly, justly, fairly judged 
and condemned by a perfect judge and be trophies of his wrath. Not as exciting. The most bitter, angry one in the mob that yells, I hate you, God, I despise you, still brings glory to the one that they so passionately hate. You could be sitting here right now in your seat thinking very obscene things about me and what I'm saying. Wouldn't be very nice of you, but you could. But you're still glorifying the one through your rebellion of refusing to hear, receive, and submit to his word. God is going to get all the glory regardless. But how much better for those of us who choose him now and choose to be glorified as trophies of his grace and not of his wrath. To see him glorified as as savior, not as judge. The second thing I want you to watch for here is how all of the promises of God are yes in Jesus. We see here that there are over 60 major prophecies about Jesus made in the Old Testament. And as we see here in Luke and the beginning for the rest of his life, he fulfills each and every one of these prophecies. In Isaiah 9, said, those who are living in darkness have seen a great light. That out of Galilee, this light of the world is going to come. And he grows up and he ministers in Galilee. Micah 5 says that from you, Bethlehem, is coming the Ancient of Days. And he does. And an interesting side note, uh, Bethlehem is, is called, it's known, the, the word means house of bread. And how fitting for the bread of life to come from the house of bread. Uh, all of, of these promises that he's coming from the, the line of David to, to be able to bless all families through, through Abraham. Um, the fact that he is poor. We, we read last week that he's going to have a diet of, of curds and honey, which was the, de- the, the, the diet of a peasant. He fulfills every single one of these prophecies, but this was not the person that the Jewish people would have expected. This poor son of a carpenter. And speaking of which, let's look at Jesus' parents for a second. Like, if we're writing this script, if, if we're casting for Jesus' parents, who are we picking? Who are we going to choose to have to, to, to bird the Prince of Peace? Like, we're probably going to pick a king and queen, right? Like, somebody of, of royalty, a somebody. I was trying to think of, like, who we would pick in our day, like, the most powerful couple I could think of. And I came up with Beyonce and Jay-Z. Um... <laughs> Now, for the under 35, for the over 35 crowd, you're like, who are they? Jesus wasn't black, which is, which is true. Um, and, and maybe for the over 35, we could pick a different couple. How about Ricky and Lucy or something like that? <laughs> Romeo and Juliet? I don't know. We go, we don't know how far back we could go. Um, I'm not in the over 35 crowd yet, but I'm getting there pretty quick. Um, but I'll tell you who they wouldn't have chosen. They would not have chosen a broke carpenter from the middle of nowhere, who lived in a town that had been invaded and burned to the ground millions of times. And we wouldn't have chosen Mary, who at best was 15 years old, probably younger than that. A maid in in, in a house probably more closer to borderline slavery in the first century. This is not the couple that we would have pegged to give birth to the king of kings. This is, and in some ways, this is kind of lost on us today because of the cultural differences. You and I, we live in, in a very low honor society, culture. Mary and Joseph lived in a very high honor culture. And there's a big difference um, between the two. And, and what I mean when I say this, we don't show honor to others the way that they would have shown honor to others, especially our elders. Gone are the days of yes, sir, yes, ma'am. No, sir, no, ma'am. I've been student teaching this semester at K Beach. 
And there's this kid in fifth grade, and he is, like, legitimately bigger than me. He's taller and bigger. Like, I can't believe this kid's 11 years old. And he's walking down the hall, and I'm greeting everybody in the morning. Hi, guys. Hi, guys. Hey. And he looks down at me, and he'll say, what's up, Frankie? Like, I'm his teacher. What's up, Frankie? Like, if you weren't the size of a small SUV, I would punch you in the throat, you little punk. Like, it's Mr. Frankino to you, right? And, and even when I was a kid, like, we, we could call, like, I, I was to call, like, uh, the Thorntons were, were really close to us, and so we didn't call them John and Diana, or Dan and Sue. It was Uncle John and Aunt Diana. Or maybe you call them Mr. John or Miss Diana, but it certainly wasn't just their first name. But in a high honor culture, things are very different. You remember the story of Jesus at the banqueting feast? He said, when you come to sit at a table, you would not, in Jewish culture, you wouldn't take, you know, if you, what you would do is you'd come and you'd take the lowest seat possible. So that someone might come up to you and say, hey, why don't you come up here and sit up closer to the head of the table? You would not plant yourself down the host's seat so that someone might come over and go, uh-uh, bro, no, I don't think so. You're moving down the list. Okay. Much better to be moved up than moved down. This is an honor, a shame-based culture, more of like what we would see in the eastern um, part of our world today than what we experience in the west. And, and here's my point. If Mary and Joseph had an ounce of respect, of upward mobility, of status in their society, there would have been some room made for them in one of those hotels in town. And Jesus would have been born in a bed not in a stable, or it was actually probably a cave out back. But God sees fit to do things upside down from how we would do them. And this couple was, was, was one that was not of, of any import, of any significance, of any power at all. And in fact, their child was wrapped up and laid inside of a manger. Now, we have the idea, we do the little box, you know, wooden trying. Uh, manger today. This is actually more of what one would have looked like. Um, this is some archaeological findings from um, those times, and it was usually made of more of like clay or rock um, would have been the kind of manger that Jesus would have been laid in. Now, I don't know much about barns or farms. I, my mom was raised in Ohio on a farm. I was raised in a fourplex on K Beach Road. Um, I don't know. We actually did have a barn in our house down Gaswell, but the only thing inside of that was a minivan and maybe some Christmas decorations. Um, but I've been to the Diamond Dam Ranch a few times, and I've seen, um, I've seen where the animals eat, okay? And it's disgusting. Now, n- no offense to Ron and Blair, I'm sure you guys keep all the FDA regulations, everything's good, but I'm also sure when Deanne, their eldest, was born, they weren't like, I know where we could have her. I, I know where we could lay her, a very sterile, clean environment, And yet, the creator of the universe, the one who sustains the world by his raw power, was laid in a stanky, filthy animal trough. That's kingdom economics. That's seeing things upside down from our expectations. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. There is a very simple, a very life-altering truth that comes out of this magnificent and yet bizarre scene in in Luke chapter 2, and that is that God is a God who keeps his promises, every one of his promises, even the small and seemingly insignificant ones. And, And here's why 
I believe that should shake us to the core. It should move us and stir our hearts, and yet why I think that it often doesn't. And there are two reasons for this, I think. The first one is ignorance. I don't know them. I don't know God's promises. I mean, imagine if you're left a will by, you know, a rich uncle or parents or grandparents, and there's this long list of things that you've inherited, you know, mansion and millions of dollars in this business, the, uh, all these things, but you've never read the will, you don't even know what belongs to you. And oftentimes, as believers, we don't even know what those promises to us are. But, but I think there's another reason that, that more of us find that we don't marvel at these promises, and that's because we believe the lie that we don't need them. Now, this can happen f- for a couple of reasons. One can simply be that we've kind of grown callous to some of these things. I mean, how many times have we read the Luke 2 story? Many of us, like me, we've grown up in the church, and we've heard these things time and, and time again, and, and we just kind of become numb to them. We just sort of take them for granted. But in another sense, we have grown up, um, our technology and our advancement in our society has given us an extreme ability to distract ourselves from just how fragile we are. And we take vacations, we bury ourselves in our hobbies, and our toys and our trinkets, they distract us from our fragility. And we live under this illusion that we can protect ourselves, that we are in control of our own lives, and that we can keep everybody safe, everybody healthy, kind of keep our act together. But if we we understand truth, we know that that's a mirage, that is a lie. We are not in control. I am so weak. Like, I am so frail. I, I am so easy to destroy at any moment. It can come from all directions. I could drive home today and be killed in a car crash. I could come down with a sickness that could wipe me out in a week. I could slip and fall and hit my head on the ice. Someone else's foolishness could lead to my demise. How's that for a nice, fuzzy Christmas servant, huh? <laughs> How many of you have been sick this year? Raise your hand if you've been sick this year in 2015. Yeah, don't be shy. Yeah, put them up. How many of you are sick right now? Scooting chairs. Now, those of you that were sick, did you take vitamins? Like, were you popping a one a day? Were you doing whatever you could to try to, to keep yourself from being sick? Uh, and you know the drill, right? You start feeling sick, and you're like, oh, I'm going to fight this thing. Where's the emergency? Right? And you get like 80 packets. You're just like, hook yourself up to an IV. Now, when you took those emergencies, let me ask you, did that stop the sickness? Like, can we even stop the common cold? No, the next day you find yourself on the bathroom door, the floor just begging, like, God, take me home now, right? Just kill me, right? And that's how it ends. But we think, oh, I'm going to control this. I got this thing, right? I mean, all, I don't want to upset anybody in here, but all the doTERRA oils in the world, all the lemongrass, prebiotic, this and that and the other. You're gonna die. Like, it's going to happen. There's not an oil for that, right? There's no de- death oil that you're like, all right, I got this. I figured this out. And it's gonna put the defibrillator or whatever that thing's called, diffuser. Oh, we're good. Now, there are good things about taking care of your body, right? About being healthy, working out, dieting. Like, I've been trying to live a healthier, smarter, smarter life myself recently. I'm not poo-pooing on that. 
and I think that that's good and right and, and can be pleasing to the Lord when kept in its proper context. My point is, all of that is not going to add a single day to your life, to my life. And, and you know why that is? Because of what Job said in, in Job 14. He said, you, talking to God, you have decided the length of our lives. You know how many months we will live. We are not given a minute longer You see, every minute that you and I have been given is a gift from God. And not a single person, not a single person dies early if, if we believe what Scripture says about God being sovereign. So go ahead and go vegan, right? Eat kale or whatever. The, I don't even know what kale is. Eat berries, diet, mineral, water. I don't, it, you all the yoga you want to do, you're not adding a single second to your life. But we often believe, like, man, if, if the brake pads are just set, right, if I can get those, if I remember to fix those, if I remember to lock the door on the way out of the house, if I, if I make sure my kids don't do X or Y, it's an illusion. We are not in control. But because we think we are in control, we do not marvel at the promises of God because we've convinced ourselves that we don't need them. And then we become our own gods, our own saviors, play out as our own sovereignty, and that is a dangerous, dangerous game to play. And this is why people who have suffered so greatly cling so tightly to the promises of God and find his grace sufficient. That's why C.S. Lewis, he said it this way, prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. The proud, the avaricious, the self-righteous are in that danger. Those of us who believe the lie, we've got a pretty good life. I mean, let's, let's be honest. Compared to the rest of the world, we're living pretty good. We don't suffer from genocide and malnutrition and, and the, the horrors that this world sees day in and day out. Most of us have a, a decent house, Money to pay, the basic bills, a little bit left to spend. And I'm not pretending, I'm not saying nobody doesn't have any hardships in here. But overall, I mean, we're a pretty young congregation. I mean, we have more weddings than funerals, more babies than cancer. And oftentimes, that can make it very difficult to believe that we need to trust in the promises of God. We say, I got this. But, but there are those in this room who through age, through trials, through suffering, have tasted and seen and, and realized that this illusion of control will evaporate. And eventually we will realize how important these promises are, hopefully before it's too late. So brothers and sisters, please cling to these promises, even the small ones, because we're going to need them in the day of trouble. Three applications, and then we'll be done. The first one is, God uses all things for his purposes and his glory. He used Pharaoh against his will, right? But it was according to God's will. He used Herod for his purposes. And we can be like Herod or Pharaoh and be used by God and glorify God while fighting against him, or we can be like Mary and Joseph and glorify God by going along with his will and walking by faith. 
Are you in your life, am I in my life, going to glorify God as judge or glorify him as savior? Number two, God does not use who or what we think. Here he uses this broke carpenter, this teenage girl, slave girl, in this tiny little town in Bethlehem for his purposes. And oftentimes, we can look at people in your life. Are there, are there people that you know, that you look at, that you judge externally, and you say, well, God would never use them? And maybe the person that you think about that the most is yourself. Man, God, what can I do? What gifts do I have? Who am I? He uses the weak to shame the strong. He uses the foolish to shame the wise. We're going to talk about that more next week when we get into the shepherds. Last application. God is a God who keeps his promises. You realize every prophecy made about Jesus in the Old Testament was fulfilled. And every single who where, when, how came to exact fruition through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And you've, you've probably heard this before, but it blows my mind every time I think about it. The odds of Jesus being who he was, fulfilling prophecy, that if even if eight, even just eight of the 60 major prophecies about Jesus were fulfilled, just eight of them, okay, the odds of one person being able to fulfill those eight prophecies is one in ten to the 17th power, which looks like this with all the zeros written out. And you're still like, I don't even, my brain, I don't know. I'm already still back on. We see things upside down. I don't get it. Um, this is how it helps me. The odds are like this. If you went to the state of Texas, okay, you filled the state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep. You took one silver dollar, you marked it, randomly tossed it into the state, blindfold somebody that you want to torture. You tell them, go into the middle, of, go out there, and on your first try, find that silver dollar. Those are the odds of somebody being able to fulfill just eight of those 60 prophecies. And Jesus fulfilled them all. This is not accident. This is not coincidence. This is divine appointment. But how many of these promises that God has made to us, if he's able to fulfill all 60 of those prophecies, is there a promise that God has made to you through his word that he's unable to keep, that he's unable to hold and, and, and bring to fruition in your life? What of these promises are you ignorant to that you don't even know exist? Now, if you don't know they exist, you don't know that they, don't, they exist. But my point is, are we in the word? Do we know his promises? Are we showing ourselves to be a workman, not ashamed? To know, to be ready, because this world is going to ask you, what's that hope you have in this fulfiller of promises? Why do you have that hope? And we're told we need to be ready to give an answer. Do we know the word is life? Are we saturated in the word every day? And what about those promises that you do know that I do know, but that I am not willing to believe and marvel at because I've convinced myself, I've believed the lie that I don't need them. That I don't need the promise that God will save me, John 3.16, because I think that I'm good enough on my own. That I have a self-righteousness that God's going to look and go, whoa, we've got to bring him up with me. What about I, the, the promise for him, that he says, I'm going to finish the good work that I started in you? 
I'm going to make you like Jesus. I'm going to do that by my power, Philippians 1.6. But we believe the lie. No, I can work my way up. I can do better. I can present myself better. I can hide those sins and, and show him my good works. And I'll earn my way up the ladder so that I can glorify myself and not him. What, what about the promise that he has made to love me and to give me significance and value? Romans 8, Ephesians 1. We say, no, 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 I'll find significance in my work. I'll find pleasure in the things around me, the distractions I've laid out for myself. I don't really need God. Thanks, but no thanks. See, dear brothers and sisters, we're not in control. And without him, we are lost and hopeless. But we've been given these beautiful promises from a wonderful God through a perfect Savior. And let's allow God to adjust our eyes of faith to see things the way that he sees them, to prioritize the way he prioritizes, to put our trust in the right object. And he's going to adjust our eyes through painful means. It's, it's not going to be easy. It's through suffering. It's through loss. It's through old age. It's through discipline. We're not being promised a smooth ride. But he is a good God who has numbered every hair on your head, who has numbered your days, not a minute longer will you live. And he will fulfill every promise he's made to us for his purposes, our good, and his glory. Let's pray. Father, there was a holy night when Christ came, heaven kissed earth, that he mended the broken, that he healed the sick. And we believe, Lord, that one day he's coming back to call us to, as your own, to make every wrong right. But Father, I confess that it's so easy for me to um, convince myself that I'm in control of my life, that, that I don't need your promises because I'm in, I'm in control, I'm in the driver's seat. Father, give us the eyes of faith to see the world as you see it to recognize that we can do nothing. There is none who does good, not one. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags in your sight. We have nothing to offer you, nothing to make us acceptable in your sight. But you promised us one who came, fulfilled 60 prophecies, proved himself to be the Messiah who was sent to crush the head of Satan and sin and death, to bless every family, every individual on earth, and to eradicate all the wrongs in our hearts and in this world. Give us the faith to take our eyes off of ourselves, put them on Jesus, and trust him as our yes to the promises that you've made to us, to love us for eternity, to call us as your own. Father, in this Christmas season, I pray that we would have the eyes that focus on what is right, see things right side up, and trust in your promises. In your son's name we pray, amen.